Welcome, one and all. So good to see you. I'm so grateful that you've chosen to join us here for the second week of the Advent season. I love using the the word Advent, don't you? It always reminds me of the fact that we celebrate a lot more than just goodwill, peace on earth, gift giving. Those are all good things, and I don't want to take away from those things. But when we say Advent, we acknowledge this simple historical fact of the incarnation that Jesus took on flesh. He became flesh and bone, and then he came to us. That's what Advent means. He came to us because we could not go to him. He literally took up residence among his people. It's the most incredibly selfless act of love in all of history. I appreciate Matt last week opening up our series by reminding us from Genesis 3 all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He reminded us that Christ must come, which points to the necessity of Advent. All the way back to the dawn of time, God expressed how needy mankind is. We're sinful beyond remedy, and our only hope of being made right with God is through someone else outside of us who is worthy and capable of interceding for us on our behalf. Well, that someone is Jesus. Advent celebrates the fact that he came to us. He had to come, or we'd be doomed. And Advent encourages us to rejoice over the fact that he did indeed come. In fact, I love the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul puts it this way. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I memorized it in the King James Version. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable. I can't even describe. It's inexpressible. It's unspeakable. The gift of God. Well, this morning we're going to look to the Old Testament once again. In fact, you heard Mary just a moment ago. We're going to catch a glimpse instead of the certainty of Advent. From the dawn of time, God made it abundantly clear that Christ will come. And we mean that term not just in the sense of it happening in the future, it will happen, but emphatically, it's a promise. Christ will come. It was 100% assured, never a doubt. Isaiah 53 explains why. So if you're not already there, turn there with me and let's look at the passage together. In fact, If you don't have a Bible, or if you don't have the ESV version of the Bible, the one you just heard read, grab that pew Bible in front of you, open it up to page 574, follow along, and then again, if you don't have that particular version of the Bible, please take that, would you? Take that home as a gift from our church to you, and please know that it's a reminder of the fact that we love you, and it's a reminder that God's Word is intended to be shared, right? So take that, please, as a gift from us to you. Now, this passage, Isaiah 53 would have been well known. Every Jewish child would have been taught from an early age that this passage describes the Mashiach, the Messiah. The Hebrews called him Mashiach, literally the anointed one. One of three positions where there was an anointing at the outset that pointed to the fact that this was a God-ordained role. Prophets, priests, kings were all anointed ones, and Jesus performed the function of all three. This Messiah was the promised Son of God, the one who would save his people. And this passage describes him as a suffering servant. And the reason that's curious to me is because people didn't recognize him as the Son of God, even though he so clearly was prophesied here in a well-known passage to every Jewish young person as the suffering servant. I think it's an amazingly accurate depiction of Jesus' death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. And it was written more than 700 years before his birth. Think of that. This beautifully poetic and prophetic passage predates the arrival of Jesus to Joseph and Mary by 700 plus years. I think what's most striking is that it's primarily written in the past 
tense, as though the events had already occurred. Have you ever caught that before? Did you notice that as Mary was reading through the text a few moments ago? Let's take another look at those first six verses in Isaiah 53. I think you'll see what I mean, and perhaps you've never read the passage quite like this before. But let me try to emphasize it a bit as we go. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The reason the word Lord is in all caps, perhaps you're reading that in your Bible in all caps, it's because it's a direct reference in the Old Testament to Jehovah God, God the Father. To whom has God's arm or his will been revealed? And then Isaiah will continue to answer that question throughout the passage. For he grew up before him like a young plant. Now, this is a direct reference to the Son of God. He, the Son of God, grew up before him, past tense, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Son of God grew up before God in a very humble circumstance. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no form or majesty. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, past tense. He was rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed. Now think of this. So Isaiah is saying we, including himself and all of his listening and reading audience, we in the past esteemed or valued him not. We didn't even know who he was. How can that be? 700 years before Jesus, seven centuries before his earthly arrival, incarnation in the flesh. Why would Isaiah said, say we valued or esteemed him, not we didn't see him for who he was? What a great and accurate prediction and prophecy. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed, again, past tense, him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced. Wow. Now, what does this reference, in your mind, think of it, and we'll talk about it in a minute. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Man, I I just was so moved, Mary, by the fact that you were moved as you were reading this passage. Wow. So true. He was wounded, and we have gone astray. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. And I think there we catch a glimpse of what it is that Isaiah is trying to communicate when he says, we esteemed him not. What Isaiah is saying is that we references all of mankind. We have gone astray. So he's identifying the human condition that was outlined all the way back in Genesis 3. We call it the fall of man. We call it the original sin. But the truth is we've always been sinful. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, has laid, past tense, on him, the iniquity of us all. Now, when you look at it a little more closely, doesn't that tense change the whole meaning of the reading? (laughs) Think of that. Ask yourself this question. Why would the Holy Spirit inspire Isaiah to write it this way? Couldn't he have predicted it? Why did he write it in the past tense? Doesn't it seem strange to kind of describe the future as an event that had already happened? Seems like a bold prediction, doesn't it? Now, of course, we're no strangers to bold predictions. We understand them. We hear them all the time. Some people even make a living at them by predicting the benefits of a product or a service, right? Salesmen, politicians, 
investment brokers. We get it. <laughs> we don't honestly take all those people at face value, though, do we? Sure, we respect a confident person, somebody who's willing to put his or her reputation on the line. But at the end of the day, we understand that no one can truly foresee the future, let alone bring it to pass. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In just a few short weeks, we will officially be 55 years since the celebration of one of the most legendary predictions in all of sports history. Are you a step ahead of me? Only a couple days before Super Bowl III in January of 1969, a day I don't remember well since I wasn't born until eight months later, but in January of 1969 for Super Bowl III, a very young and very cocky quarterback named yeah, Joe Namath publicly announced, we're going to win the game, I guarantee it. He was in a, a local public setting. I think it was, he was in a nightclub. And at the time, his team, the New York Jets, weren't taken seriously by anyone except for their most loyal fans. You see, they were 19-and-a-half-point underdogs. They'd barely won their own championship in the upstart American Football League. And now here they were facing the powerhouse Baltimore Colts at the time of the tried-and-true National Football League. And so everyone expected a blowout by the heavily favored Colts. But if you know your sports trivia, or if you've ever watched a television, <laughs> you probably realize that the Jets were a surprisingly strong football team and they had a solid game plan. In fact, they led the entire game, all four quarters, and won the title in convincing fashion. So it was as though Broadway Joe, as he came to be known, Joe Namath had willed his team to win. And to this day, now it's commonplace for athletes to declare victory before the game's even played, speaking as though they've already won. Now, we understand that they don't really know if it's really going to happen or not. They're just putting on bravado. It's part of the human condition, right? I want to have the confidence, the bold confidence of somebody who's acting like we're definitely going to win, no question. The truth is that despite our best efforts, we can't predict the future because it's completely out of our hands. So why would Isaiah do what he did here? Well, I think that's exactly the point of chapter 53. Isaiah wasn't really predicting what would happen to the Son of God. He was outlining confidently as the Holy Spirit was revealing it to him. You see, Isaiah's description of Jesus is said in the past tense because on God's timeline, it had already happened. You see, God doesn't just travel back and forth in time between past, present, and future. Sometimes we see him as a cosmic time traveler. He can be in the present or he can be in the past or he can be in the future at any given time. The truth is, though, that's not the way God's existence looks. He exists outside of all three, viewing them all simultaneously like a blueprint. Before the world was even created, God had already set the wheels in motion for his divine plan. He knew man's condition. He knew his solution. He knew he would send his son. He knew what his son would do. He always knew that he would send his only begotten son to live among men. He established this divine plan in eternity past, and then God himself has sustained it every step of human history. So, friends, on the basis of God's character, there's never been a question that Christ will come. You know why? Because the certainty of Advent points to the sovereignty of God. God who is in control. God who rules. God who reigns. Whether we acknowledge him or not, God rules, God reigns over his world. 
nothing in this life happens outside of God's will. Let that sink in. God's divine plan will be brought to fruition. Now, I know what you're doing. You're doing the same thing I do because I'm a skeptic. Well, what about this, Trevor? What about this thing I did that I don't think was part of God's will? I disobeyed him. I did something that was kind of a workaround. I made mistakes. What about that? I'm going to let you fuss and stew over that a little bit. I want to talk through what I mean by God's sovereignty. The certainty of Advent, the the fact that Christ will come, points to the sovereignty sovereignty of God. He is in control of his world. But notice with me, secondly, if you would, from this passage, that there's a stunning correlation between the description here in Isaiah and the actual events of Jesus' death and burial. Yeah, I know, what are the odds, right? So read the text of these next three verses together with me, if you would. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, what phrase do you notice being important to Isaiah? So much so that it's repeated. What phrase? Do you see it? The fact that Jesus... Open not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked. This is just stunning. How accurate. He made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, as you're reading through that passage, I'm sure there are images in your mind of the memories that come from your reading of the Gospels. If you're even vaguely familiar with how the Gospels present the the sham of a trial that Jesus endured the night that he was betrayed, all night long, first at the hands of his own countrymen, the Jews, through the night, an exhausting time through the night after his betrayal in the garden, but then eventually the Romans, too, in the early hours of the morning. If that's something that is cast into your mind as you read through this passage, then those images of Jesus being railroaded through this so-called justice system might be hard to erase from your mind. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about as this story is relayed through all four Gospels. Each of those Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them describe an obvious rush to judgment, including that very important and very specific detail that Jesus said nothing in his own defense. How did Isaiah put it? So he opened not his mouth. It's exactly as verse 7 here in Isaiah describes it. Now, in the book of Matthew, the first of the four Gospels, chapter 26, verse 63 says that Jesus remained silent. Pretty accurate. The very next Gospel, Mark, puts it this way. Chapter 14, verse 61 adds that he made no answer. Luke includes a few more of Jesus' responses to those who were vehemently accusing him. That's the wording that Luke uses. But ultimately, he agrees in chapter 23, verse 9, that despite being questioned at some length, this is directly from the text of Luke, despite being questioned at some length, he made no answer. Of the four, I think John is the most descriptive of the Gospels in relaying the interactions between Jesus and the Roman governor, Pilate. More than the other accounts, John reflects the deepening frustration that Pilate must have experienced when Jesus refused to defend himself. In John chapter 19, verse 10, you can almost hear Pilate's exasperation. Listen to what he says. You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus explained to him where his authority came from, right? But 
Did Jesus defend himself? No. You see, those events only served to prove that Isaiah was right. Really, the Holy Spirit inspiring Isaiah was right. Remind yourself of the wording right there. Look at it in the text of Isaiah 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And I think what really makes Isaiah's account jump off the page is that it's specific down to even the small details. Jesus really was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He knew that he was going to be executed. In fact, what did he pray in the garden the night before? Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours. He knew. He knew he was headed like a lamb to the slaughter. And what did he do? He offered his life willingly. He was taken away. Look at the passage. Look at the wording. He was taken away. We know that he was eventually crucified at Golgotha, the place of the skull, outside the city walls of Jerusalem. He was cut off out of the land of the living. See all these phrases? That one in verse 8, he was cut off out of the land of the living when he genuinely, he physically died. He, he, he was separated from this life on earth in some manner. It really happened that he physically died. Verse 9 continues that he made his grave with the wicked. How did he do that? Well, by hanging on a cross between two thieves. And notice how the passage continues in verse 9, with a rich man in his death. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, right? And for those of you who remember the story from the Gospels, it was the tomb of a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. You see, all of these basic ideas that are, that are specific down to the detail and that are accurate to what eventually would happen at that point in time in earth's history point to this fact that we can trust the Word of God because God's Word is true. It's precise. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. To put it succinctly, Christ will come. The certainty of the Advent points to the accuracy of Scripture. The sovereignty of God comes from this passage. God really is in control. He's really in charge. He established that his son would come from the dawn of time, from before the creation of the world, from the foundation of the world is how the, the word of God puts it. But even before that, God established what his plan would be. Christ will come. That's something that's an absolute certainty. And referring to it in the past tense, that, that simply points out the authority of God, the sovereignty of God but it also points to the accuracy of Scripture. The God who, in his sovereignty, established his plan and sent his Son and not only predicted it, but spoke of it in his inspiration to Isaiah, here in Isaiah 53. He's the very same God that brought those events to pass. His word is true. The certainty of Advent points to the accuracy of Scripture. Notice with me finally, though, that there's an abrupt shift in the tense from past to future, and that happens about halfway through verse 10. So check out these verses with me, and let's finish off the passage together, beginning with verse 10. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him he has put into grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I think what's so remarkable about this passage is that seven times in these three verses, Isaiah uses the word shall to point out what the Messiah will accomplish in the future. Here he is speaking in the past tense. And then suddenly and abruptly to us as readers, he shifts to the future tense. Seven uses of the word shall, one use of the word will. What was he doing? Why? Why did this wording point to what he was trying to accomplish with this passage? Well, I believe he was showing us that Christ's work is so powerful that it will never truly end. In fact, think of what the angel Gabriel confirmed to Mary when he told her that her son would reign over the house of Jacob forever. Do you remember? From Luke chapter 1, verse 33, Gabriel said to her, he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Why? Well, it's because Christ's work is too powerful to end. It's ongoing. As Isaiah puts it here, he shall see his offspring. Notice that? See it in verse 10. He shall see his offspring. That's a reference to the fact that one day all followers of Jesus will gather around his throne in heaven. He will see all of them in heaven one day. He shall prolong his days. A reference to Christ's deity, which which is evidenced by his resurrection and his power over death. All of these very simple, quick, easy-to-read phrases all point to specific events that either happened at the cross or will happen or point to Jesus and his power over death and his resurrection. Notice how the passage continues, though. He shall see and be satisfied and make many to be accounted righteous. What's he saying? Well, the sin of mankind is conquered through the sacrificial, atoning death of God's only Son. Again, remember that Christ had to come. There's no way that we could account or atone for ourselves. Christ had to come. Christ must come. We talked about that last week. Though we were dead in the sin of Adam, we're made alive through Christ, as Romans puts it. It was absolutely necessary for Christ to come, and that's why it was essential for Isaiah to point out that it is an absolute certainty. He must come. Therefore, he will come. The passage continues, he will divide the spoil with the strong. Notice how um, Isaiah uses that wording in verse 12. He'll divide the spoil with the strong. That word strong is also translated many. He shall divide the spoil with the many. Perhaps your Bible even has that note. In other words, there's coming a time when every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess who Jesus really is. His true identity as Lord over all will one day be revealed. And although right now the multitudes might not admit it, There will be a day when absolutely everyone on earth in all of mankind's history knows exactly who Jesus really is. There's no questioning this simple idea that Christ will come. The certainty of Advent points to the ongoing work, and I would even say the ongoing power of Jesus. So my question for you this morning, friends, is this. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? We talk about the fact that Christ must come. Christ will come. And next we'll talk about how, the, how, how it's clear through Scripture that Christ has come and that one day he will come again in the upcoming next two weeks. Perhaps you've seen it on that little invitation. But is this more than a story about a baby in a manger to you? Do you really know him as your Savior? 
Do you understand that God truly is sovereign in all the events of your life, the struggles, the difficulties, everything it is that you're facing today? All of it is part of a divine plan. And perhaps that divine plan in God's sovereignty as he's directing and guiding your life with all the good that happens, with all the bad that happens, even with all the mistakes that nudge you closer and closer to his plan for your life, perhaps, friends, all of that has brought you to a moment where today... God changes your destiny forever. Is this the Christmas that changes you? Do you know this Jesus? Not the Jesus only of a manger, but the Jesus who is the Son of God, the God who's sovereign. The Jesus, the Son of God who is predicted in Scripture, Scripture that we can trust. It's accurate. This Jesus who has ongoing work in my life and in yours and in the lives of all of those in the world. Is this the Christmas that Jesus changes everything for you? Perhaps the words of the familiar carol will ring true in a way they never have before. You'll recognize them right away, but notice with me on the screen the words to that familiar Christmas carol. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And I'll let you finish the repetition of that phrase in your mind. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Not only every person on earth, but even the creation itself will cry out the joy that comes with knowing that Jesus reigns. He rules the world. How? With truth, with grace makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Do you know him, friends? Is today for you a day when the fact that he will come, Christ will come, is today perhaps the fact that his, his coming was necessary and that his coming is absolutely sufficient for you? Perhaps today is the day that that makes a mark on your life like never before. Would you bow with me?